Monday night edition of the pod got a nice little reprieve from our woes watching the last dance last night that was fun and uh, we're going to talk about that and then we got to do another agent report Brandon Rosenthal of Landmark Sports it used to be uh, with Rob Palinka there and Jim Tanner from Tandem so uh, some of their clients James Harden Marvin Williams Thaddeus Young Tanner got John Morant this year Andre Guadala Buddy healed so let's get started though Danny you were not really a basketball fan during the Jordan Bulls era by contrast I grew up in the Chicagoland area during the 1990s I was a high school basketball player during that time I graduated from high school in 1998 I still remember where I was I in my basement Jordan hits the shot over Brian Russell and I jumped up and hit my head on the ceiling because I was so excited about it we had low ceilings but anyway uh, what did you think uh like what are some of your big revelations from watching uh, the first two episodes I hadn't and, and obviously I picked up a lot from this team just by virtue of the business we're in and all that but yeah I didn't really become a big basketball fan for a little while after this I mean I would say really like 0405 was was where I started so that's a full you know it's a pretty significant stretch after this team I, I thought some of it was just you know in thinking about kind of what our job is and how we would have reacted to some of the things of the moment and and for me the big one and and we'll talk about the way they've talked about Jerry Krause a lot more probably in a little bit but just the sheer insanity of having the defending champions and the general manager announces that this will be their coach's last year and it's not like he's retiring or anything just saying he's going to be gone when your star player the best player in the world arguably the greatest player of all time has said he is my coach like I'm basically he's my only coach that all I I didn't know that had happened and that blew my mind well Tim Floyd did a radio interview today and he said that Jerry Krause very awkwardly started approaching him back when he was the coach at University of New Orleans before he even went to Iowa State in the late 80s Krause was kind of buttering him up the famous fishing trips that Tim Floyd and Jerry Krause would go on together that was Krause's cover for meeting with Floyd this idea that they're fishing buddies in fact Krause had never been fishing heard that Floyd liked to fish and had Floyd like teach him to fish so that they had that as a cover for hanging out and getting to know each other of course Tim Floyd took over the Bulls after the 99 lockout they had this bullshit fiction about how like Tim Floyd was being hired and he was the coach in waiting and Phil Jackson could still be the coach if he wanted to which was contrary to what they said at the start of the of the 97-98 season and then Floyd today in this radio interview he said that he met in secret with Jerry Reinsdorf in Seattle in 1996 they just won 72 and 10 won the championship Phil Jackson's the coach of the year and Krause wanted to move on from Jackson he said that he just couldn't deal with working with Jackson anymore and so jerry reinsdorf told floyd to tell cross basically like no we're not we're not going to do that he should try to get along with him better but i, I mean really i think uh, th- th- there's a, a lot to unpack here about cross i mean cross is just a an amazing figure in a lot of ways and if you've never read it i mean i'm sure it's the sales gonna be through the roof now the jordan rules and then uh the follow-up the second coming but some of the stuff from the jordan rules about cross is, is absolutely a lo- just remarkable i got that book for christmas in uh of 1991 which is uh, about the bulls championship season one of the greatest sports books of all time by by sam smith but uh yeah i mean i, I drew it on here for a while but i mean that's just i mean a lot of people were saying that would never happen today do you agree with that i think the announcement 
that the coach was going to be gone after that season, that wouldn't, w- without it being like retirement or something like that. You know, if, if let's say Greg Popovich or something just basically said he's, he's done, then yeah, they could have a goodbye tour for a coach like that. And Jackson was legendary even in even in that stage of his career. I mean, he start his first job as a as a head coach was, I believe, was with the Bulls. And but yeah, the, it was well uh, it other was. than the Albany Patroons. Yes, of the other, yeah, exactly. And so, not to d- disparage the CBA, of course, but hey, I, I, you could probably disparage it. It's okay. and, and so that part of it was was something I don't think would would happen now to a coach of his stature to basically say that. And then with with also with with Jordan's public comments before that, I mean, in the doc they talk about the '97 Finals, but I believe there had been other stuff as well, and also his relationship with Phil, which was of course very well known and more well known to Kraus and everybody else. So I, I think that that was something. But then the other part, and again, there are ten. There are ten elements. Well, well can, of this. can I talk yeah. a little bit about the? Or were you going to transition to something else? I got a few more thoughts on the Jackson Kraus thing. No, it, it it relates, but we can we, you can talk about it, and then we'll go to the other part because it's about Kraus. Oh uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I think certainly Kraus was just such a weirdo. He was do, he would do all this like crazy cloak and dagger stuff. A lot of that's detailed in the Jordan rules, but like a couple of examples that come to mind for me. One was he went to Dan Marley out of Central Michigan in the 1988 draft, and basically like tried to promise him for like a third round pick. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted him to shut his workouts on and and you know back at that time if you went to a small school like Scotty Pippen blew up in the 1987 combine when they were played five on five and most of the players would play in that at that time and so Marley was like no actually I think I'm gonna go to the combine and try and be a first round pick he ended up being a, a first round pick as a really good player for a while he definitely Krause had an eye for talent though like that much is pretty clear I mean Pippen Horace Grant I mean that's one of the Horace Grant's one of the criminally underrated historically uh one of the and he traded up to get Pippen as well I mean that was that was outstanding did a great job with that uh you know it had some and, and got Pippen to sign that now even more famous contract i mean that's- oh, oh we'll we'll get to that don't worry don't worry <laughs> we, we will get to there's there's some more context from that still uh, that was missing from the show but to me i i think it ultimately gets back to yes Kraus had a massive ego the fact that he couldn't and was so insecure and just didn't get it that like oh yeah you know like we just won 72 games the idea that i would be trying to fire my coach instead of work with him like it's so it's so utterly selfish almost to be like yeah you know i didn't like working with this guy so fire him even though we just won 72 games even though it's going to piss off the greatest player of all time who by the way also really disliked cross going back to that that 1986 um return from injury that was detailed but jerry reinsdorf also like totally enabled cross and that's and that's exactly where i wanted to go is I, I part of me is uncomfortable with it because I think part of the reason it is being told this way is because Jerry Krause has passed away. He died in March 2017. Yeah, and uh, although I don't know how although I, I thought I thought of that too, and it, th- that he died. But there were many many contemporary reports about this same time. Oh 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 yeah, absolutely. But I think part of what's ha- what has happened in the first two, and I can't say that this will happen moving on, is I people know that like on the long run of this show, I, I talk I try to use the term manager to talk and the, the important relationship between a general manager and an owner and yes it's possible you could argue and, and there absolutely is an argument a credible one that Krauss's ability to identify talent made him worth keeping but when you think about how a lot of this this animosity was in, in the modern era if the general manager is causing is, is a part of this much strife and you have the greatest player of all time and you have one of the most respected coaches of all time one of the highest profile uh, as well 
then normally the the way this resolves is the the owner tells the general manager get your act together or you're the one who's going to be gone and so you know both Reinsdorf and Krauss are in the Hall of Fame, which is also interesting. But Reinsdorf, also, we have this other wealth of stuff like, oh, one of the other ancillary parts of the Bulls, like, of this breakup is they were going to get a lot more expensive, and we've seen Reinsdorf be, you know, ha- have all these flaws as an owner in the time after that. And so I, I think that at least to this point, it- it- it's kind of gone under, it's been under-discussed, the-, the like, the financial element of this part of the story, when you consider everything else. And the interpersonal is so much more interesting, and you can get better quotes on it and all that. But it, it's another part of this that I think is important. Oh, yeah, definitely. We, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the actual breakup of the dynasty when that part of the documentary comes out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can't remember another GM who was ever at odds with their star player like this. And this is the greatest player of all time. And you know, Ethan's book, which we're going to have him on probably next week to talk about that, uh, about the Warriors gets into this. We see all the free agent recruitment, shorter contracts as well. You know, there really weren't, Shaq was really the first huge free agent who is a a superstar to change teams of his own volition he really started this era where oh man we got to keep these superstars happy i don't think anyone ever thought that jordan would just leave and, and go somewhere else but clearly it's a totally different environment now and no gm would ever ask like act like this and the idea that he could possibly be backed up by management was totally insane now the one thing that kraus gets shit on too much for is the organizations win championship this was alluded to in the story that he was misquoted on that but he also could have just managed it and apologized well and and that's the uh, so the part you taught you brought up ethan's book i've been reading tanking to the top as well which gets into another different general manager type of relationship and and the 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 challenges of like that i mean and it's a great example ethan's book gets into this too of how the general manager job is really hard (laughs) and how there are a lot of different elements you know identifying talent making trades making calls but another element is not only managing the personalities of the people involved which Krauss obviously had major problems with but also you know just maintaining relationships within the organization and with the press and that's like that's a pretty amazing part of this like yeah it was I think it was easy to jump on him but also like I mean he as you said he didn't do a lot to clear it up other than saying he was misquoted but I mean you, you, basically if you're a GM there even then especially if you're the Bulls like there there will be a microphone for you if you want to like talk about it and get get your full intent on the page Okay, I want to talk about Pippen's situation here in a second, right after this. So, Scotty Pippen, again, a lot of this is detailed in the Jordan Rules. I've reread that book, I don't know how many times, especially when I was young, and you always remember the details better for, for when you're young, oddly enough. But when he signed a rookie deal, it was something like, you know, a six-year deal out of the 1987 draft for under a million dollars a year. And so, he was very unhappy about his contract in 1991, and... He signs the extension, the three-year, I'm sorry, the seven-year, $18 million extension. And I'm not sure whether that number included the number, the two years that were remaining on his original contract at that time. But this is detailed in the Jordan Rules that Pippen, he has a back surgery during his rookie year. He saw, obviously, he's very affected by the paralysis, both his older brother and his father. And so he was just very, very focused on security. He was very, very risk averse. And so 
Reinsdorf said in the documentary that he said, hey, Scotty, like, don't sign this. And of course, Reinsdorf was also very adamantly against renegotiating any of these contracts. And I'm sure part of why he wasn't too interested in renegotiating Pippen's contract was that Jordan's contract, this is his third contract with the Bulls, or third and fourth contracts with the Bulls. The first one was kind of similar to Pippen's. Then they renegotiate that one for about $3 million a year in the late 80s. And that was like, you know, eight years, 26 million or something like that. And because you didn't have any limits on the length of contracts, Magic Johnson famously signed a $25 million, 25 year contract with the Lakers in the early 80s. And that, that was pre-salary cap, I think. But nonetheless, there wasn't any limitation on the length of contracts until the 99 CBA that the owners fought tooth and nail to get in that yep. lockout. So then Jordan is a free agent in the summer of 1996. By the way, Reinsdorf had continued to pay him while he was playing baseball, which was probably a smart move. Uh, And then Jordan gets a one-year $30 million deal for 96-97, and then gets another one-year $33 million deal for 97-98. And so the fact that he had to pay Jordan that amount, Rodman was on a similar boat. He had a $9 million contract, one year $9 million in 96-97, and then $4.5 million the year after that because he was coming off a kind of a weird playoffs and season and he had all this suspension he didn't have necessarily other options either so that's part of why he didn't want to negotiate with him he didn't want to create uh this precedent of renegotiating a contract i mean it was a great contract and now of course there the ability to renegotiate a lot of these contracts under the current cba is lessened yeah we haven't we've seen very very few renegotiations you have to have salary caps space bulls didn't have that uh i don't know whether pippen wanted an extension i I, i'm not sure what the renegotiation rules were exactly before that 99 cba so that's some of the context here and uh, i don't know what did what did you have any thoughts in particular on pippen i i have a few more but uh did you know about all, all that stuff before this i knew a little bit of it and i knew that he had missed part of that season i did i didn't know the I, and there obviously there there there's stuff that predates that predates this in terms of the leaving the bench and all that type of stuff but i didn't know that he deliberately delayed his surgery that which another one of those like if that happened now especially with yeah. a team like the well like and, the and i don't know that that was even quite public knowledge <laughs> the like time. i i i was gonna have my summer it's like i mean because like now there sometimes it becomes a big thing when a player like starts the season out of shape and uses the season to get in shape draymond talked about that once because of how long the playoffs run but the idea of taking your summer and then having surgery is is again like that's well well Shaq did that in uh where he had the famous line that he got hurt on company time so he was gonna rehab on company time uh that was i can't remember that was oh two or oh three i think that might have been the oh two oh three season um with Shaq. but those are the two players i remember but it also uh, reminds me a little bit of what Kyrie Irving was threatening to do when he yep. wanted out of Cleveland. Yeah, the, the, the when the famous, you know, basically like, I, I have an elective surgery, I'm going to take it and miss that whole season. Yeah, and, and supposedly, it didn't seem like it was the greatest negotiating from Scotty. Maybe this was omitted from the discussion in the documentary, but it doesn't seem like he was like, hey, extend me or I'm going to wait until September to get this surgery or, or early October to get this surgery. You know, it, it seemed like it was just, all right, I'm mad, so I'm going to do this. It didn't seem like it was that good a calculation. Also, a lot of people were shitting on Pippen's agent, Jimmy Sexton, who's a very successful football agent now, uh, but supposedly Sexton encouraged him not to take the deal in the summer of 1991. And that that appropriately ties in with something we've talked about, we'll talk about on this show and in other ones, that it, part of 
part of what agents have to, you know, they have to deal with the clients they have. And so if a, if a player is ri- more risk averse, they can advise, but they can't force them to do anything. Yeah. And I think, you know, Krause to some degree might have had the right idea as far as, you know, Pippen wasn't worth the next contract that he got probably. Uh, but it, it, we'll get into the actual breakup in that 1998-1999 period. The lockout had something to do with it as well, uh, of course. But the last thing that stuck out to me, and I I assume this is never going to get discussed, it's very easy for everyone to praise just like, oh man, MJ was just the most competitive guy ever. He was just unbelievable. That work ethic drove him. Let's praise all that. And yeah, you know what? I agree. I mean, I'm not sure. You, you never know. I mean, there, all these reports are anecdotal of like who literally works the hardest. You know, if you spend four hours doing stuff that's not as efficient as someone who's doing it for two and a half hours, like who's working harder, right? Like that's you know, you'll never get an objective understanding of, of who's working the hardest, whether he literally was the hardest working. You know, I mean, it seems like he, he came in, he had that discussion with Roy Williams, where he's like, I want to be the greatest player ever at UNC. And he's like, well, you're going to have to actually work at it. So, you know, it doesn't seem like he just naturally was working so incredibly hard uh, right in the beginning but part of the reason that having that crazy mentality worked was because he actually was good enough for it to to be to get positive returns from it right like that approach actually worked for him he didn't really get humbled right like he it actually was true that if he worked absolutely as hard as he can he could be the greatest of all time whereas a lot of people really work hard but you know if you only have the talent to be a role player ultimately you you're going to have a little bit different of a mentality because you just you're not actually winning like you're going to suffer some cognitive dissonance at some point where you really have to accept what your role is accept that maybe you're not the best and that can actually help your game and help your team if you come to that Jordan never had to actually confront that it seemed like that's a great point and I was struck by the so there was a Bob Knight quote that was included in the that was included in the doc and then somebody posted the the longer version of it which I thought was really telling and basically talked about how he thought you know Michael Jordan was the most physically gifted player that he'd seen and then also the combination of being a competitor and like all, all the things that he was special at and it was that combination you know and that there's a there's a parallel though there with like Kobe and with LeBron that is you know you have to have that foundation of being one of the greatest athletes in the history of the game plus the work ethic to reach that level because everybody else just the the ceiling just isn't and and plus you also just had the type of body where you just didn't really get hurt yeah he never got hurt other than that one broken foot and then when he had knee tendonitis in his days in washington when he's 39 and 40 and also, I mean, that work ethic really lent itself to the to the later stages of his career too, because when he became, you know, not the same athlete that he was, that he had all these other all these other elements to his game and and I only got into it a little bit I, I, i'm not spending as much time on twitter right now uh for various reasons i mean one being that there isn't the same type of news to catch up on in terms of sports but like i dipped my toe in the whole like kind of the the difference in shots and all that type of stuff and i, I think what what is i think that there's a fair point about how like the league is just so fundamentally different now than it was then and the rules are different and uh, something i brought up in uh, as well as the selection like what you what gms are valuing in players is different and that has a lot of spillover effects you know if you if it's more important than a player shoots players who shoot are often worse at defense and so thus your de- the defense is is devalued comparatively 
and all those things fit together but it is you know like it is remarkable when you think about just how different the sport is you know that it was i, I brought up the stat that the the sonics the the last dance regular season they led the league in effective field goal percentage i think it was 52.1 percent that would have been 23rd this year and that's not to say like oh the league sucked everyone was bad or anything like that it's just it was a very different world and it is it is striking i mean to watch i mean you could see some of his mid-range artistry in that extended clip they did which was great of that celtics game in the in the uh in the playoffs and and it is, it, I mean, it's, it's funny as somebody who didn't grow up watching the sport to see that and be like, oh yeah, that's, that's, it's just, it, it's so dramatically separate from what we see now. Yeah, this is something we'll probably get back to when they do the Bulls Jazz series. I think the, the final score of that game was 88-87, the game six in 1998. You're going to take a guess at how many possessions that game had. I'm going to say, I'm going to say 102. Oh no, no, it's way less than today. 72 possessions. Oh my God. Oh yeah, I should have guessed that because there wasn't as the transition game was so different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is something I've hit on before, but part of the reason you mentioned more offensive players, adding, changing the zone rules is yes. probably the biggest thing that the NBA could do. Because number one, you used to be able to just go at these guys one-on-one. There was so much ISO game that you couldn't have guys on the floor who would just get beat up in ISO who couldn't guard their man one-on-one. So number one with that zone difference did was it meant that if you had guys who couldn't shoot, you didn't have to guard that guy anymore. And number two is that if you had a guy who could shoot but wasn't able to guard his man one-on-one, you could give much more help to that guy as well. So on both ends, it meant that offensive players were more important. And so you didn't have just these, you know, as it really devolved into bully ball in the late 90s, early 2000s, and you, you know, every team needed to just have these muscle-bound 6-6 guys to guard the other team's best scores. And same thing in the post there's so much about just if you can't guard your position one-on-one you can't play and now that's not nearly as much the case anymore i think it leads to much better uh, looking basketball um last thing i want to talk about here actually let's take another break first so the last thing i wanted to talk about was just thinking about michael jordan the owner with all these quotes about his just absolutely completely insane competitiveness and how the point is to win every game and he couldn't deal with sitting out at the end of the season in 1986 because uh, there was a thought that they were tanking and even because they were about trying that. to make the playoffs at 30 and 52 yeah <laughs> because 16 teams out of 23 made it uh yeah yeah i mean that, that was a, i mean teams used to just get completely waxed in that first round um even in, in five game series and worth doing the bulls you know they got swept again the next year by the Celtics too. Uh, Jordan didn't have nearly the, the same series, and, and people, the Celtics were like, "Yeah, we kind of came up with Jordan rules for that series before the Pistons did." But, but in any event, I was just thinking about I'm like thinking about seven and fifty nine in the eleven twelve season for uh, the then Bobcats, and like Michael just he clearly has not owned the team with that same level of competitiveness. He's maybe his level of competitiveness has been to make as much money as he reasonably could, but you know he lives in Florida, like Jackie McMillan was talking about. He you know he goes like skiing with his family. He's large an absentee owner for whatever reason both in terms of the monetary investment and in terms of just caring about the team and caring about winning he obviously doesn't care as much about the hornets winning as he cared about winning himself well, and, uh, and as some a of, and some of that might be just that he's deliberately decreased 
the visceral experience of it. You know, like it, when you're a yeah, player, maybe that's right. Maybe he was just like, you know what? It's not going to work for me to win. And I just, I, I gotta, I can't be around this every day or I'm going to go insane. Yeah. I, I think that's entirely possible, but I, I'll be interested to see if they even mention the Charlotte Bobcats and Hornets in, uh, in this documentary, or if they mention the wizards at all in this documentary. Yeah. Also, MJ, like, had the absolute, like, best style of anybody back then. I mean, seeing all the 90s clothes and stuff was, it was pretty remarkable. But he definitely had the best style of just about anyone back then. And uh, that that hasn't lasted, as it turned out. <laughs> um, all right, you want to do a little agent evaluation here? Let's uh, do uh, Brandon Rosenthal of Landmark Sports. Uh, Diana Day uh, also involved there. And once again, uh, what I will say here is... The public information about some of this stuff when players were with what agent is scant at times we tried to piece it together great help from our director of basketball research ben dull on some of this stuff scouring the publicly available information on this but if, if you happen to know that uh, this is incorrect please tell me we haven't gotten any corrections yet thankfully other than that one that we had to make uh, about uh, jason glujan but also worth noting here danny that this isn't business school uh, how do we do the grading on these uh, evaluations a C is average, and average is totally fine, you know, especially in certain situations, there might not be as much upside for an agent. Remember the word, you know, we're talking about the contracts that they negotiated were where if they were able to get a player drafted high relative to their talent level or their production, you know, any of that, that type of stuff. And 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 so, and, you know, like if for, and another one of those, for example, is if a player is an unambiguous max guy, getting them a max contract isn't as amazing a job by the agent. Now, if there's work that has to get into getting to the right location or something else then that will we will note those specific considerations as we did extensively in rich paul's if you want to go back and listen to that but most of the time were agents like because the hypothetical here is we're pretending that a member of our family or close circle was considering who to go to for an agent a lot of times those aren't going to be max players they're only a small group and so it's how do they do finding getting maximizing money and situation for their clients who are mostly you know middle class nba players because that's how most of it is middle class and minimum yeah we put a little more emphasis too on second contracts not necessarily rookie contracts since there isn't much headroom there to improve things brian bowen is uh, with landmark sports but uh he's on a two-way don't really ha- have enough information with the the pacers of how the performance has been there either way i don't think he was like supposed to be drafted highly or, or anything like that so give him just uh a not applicable there not really enough information for a grade uh dante exum was drafted fifth overall pretty good job in retrospect getting him signed there because you'll remember his story he had a really nice 2013 hoop summit and then he just goes and plays australian high school basketball there's some talk that he might enroll maybe at indiana in college they decided not to do that for him and in fact he was drafted fifth that was a a great idea obviously exum has really struggled with injuries and ended up signing a three-year 33 million dollar deal as a restricted free agent uh, and then was traded to cleveland as a i would think a negative value contract this season as the jazz finally gave up on the that fifth overall pick from 2014 i thought they did a pretty good job uh in 
getting that three-year $33 million contract from Utah, especially since that was in the summer of 2018. I agree. It was a, it was a tough market for a lot of players. Restricted guys always have an additional thing because teams don't want to tie up their money. So that makes re-signing with their current team a much more palatable option. Yeah, he, when he, possibly, didn't probably, have, he clearly didn't have any type of offer out there like that. I, I would assume so. And remember, Exum, you know, he had such a star-crossed rookie scale, you know, those four years with where he had showed some flashes at times, but then also battled injuries and the Jazz succeeded without him. And then, you know, some of the, the, his best times were his kind of a second unit guard. And so to get 10, 10 million, 11 million a year, depending if we're going guaranteed money or, or uh, you know, like the, the incentives was, I thought that was, was solid for them. That was something David Locke and I disagreed on going back, back in time. And even going as recently as when they, when they were figuring out what to do when they acquired Mike Conley and just kind of who was definite on like, basically who was definite on the jazz's books and all that. And then they eventually moved him to Cleveland. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't hate it too badly for the jazz, but I thought that they definitely overpaid to some degree. This was a good job of selling excellence potentially really had developed in a very limited way uh, as a ball handler uh, and shooter uh, and so this was sold on potentially he was still young 22 years old uh, when this was signed but he has not continued to develop yet had another injury hit year last year and so he moved around so i gave, I gave an a minus uh for that one and uh same thing a a minus for uh, the job getting him drafted fifth so uh, uh solid work there uh, now we go to to Eric Gordon. Gordon's first fruitful uh, unrestricted free agent contract was 2016. Remember, he was pretty enthusiastic about leaving New Orleans, something he had been trying to do for years after getting traded there in the famous Chris Paul deal. And he signed a four-year, $53 million deal with the Houston Rockets in 2016. And instead of becoming a free agent, which would have been he would have become a free agent at the end of this now hiatus season, he signed an extension adding, I believe it, it, so it added four years, $76 million, but three years of the last year of that is, is fully non-guaranteed. Yes. I'm actually talking about this, talking about this in a piece with The Athletic right now. And so we could talk about both the 2016 contract and the 2019 extension. Yeah, the 2016 contract actually gave that a D plus. Um, now, Gordon was not the player in New Orleans that he later became, especially defensively, but was one of the, the NBA's best shooters. He was coming off kind of a rough year as that whole New Orleans team was in 2016, but he'd stayed healthy for a couple of years he'd been so injury hit uh with his knees during that well time. He, i will say he he played 45 games the year before he signed this contract so that he had been healthy before that but then oh i think, I think he, he had, had a broken hand is what yeah. it was so it wasn't it, was, it wasn't yeah. something that we freaked out about like the earlier injuries yeah. like when he was the first couple of years in new orleans but he well he did miss time i mean i was critical of the contract for houston i was wrong about that one of the few 2016 contracts i was wrong about because of the injury risk and no in fact he was able to to stay healthy out before that but considering how good he was and how much less money he got than a lot of players who weren't nearly as good as him uh you know i i think that's one one of the few where he the agent i think underperformed a little bit in 2016 now he may have had more money elsewhere too and he just wanted to go to houston that could have been part of it and certainly he sent him to a place where he would have a great chance to succeed i think that was a that may have been part of it too um i don't know i mean a d plus that's like that's below average but not catastrophic let's let's remember that uh 
but then I think I would go with an A minus for the extension that he signed that doesn't even kick in until this summer. So he's going to be 31 at that point, pays him for three more years, the maximum possible extension that he could have signed aside from uh, that non-guarantee in the last year. Yeah, and I think that with Gordon, 31 years old, dealing with his injury history, but also just the way that player, players can age, and then signing that extension, then having, you know, partially due to bad luck and things, but having not the greatest year with Houston, I don't think he would have gotten something particularly close to this as a free agent, especially considering uh, no. the 2020, considering the 2020 market is just so horrendous. And it's leveraging Houston is not the easiest thing to do in the world. This isn't Dante Exum with the Jazz a couple years ago. Uh, so I, I think that it worked out really well for for Gordon and then obviously for Landmark to to negotiate that deal. Yeah, so I and, agree with you on the A minus. Worth noting, of course, that they have James Harden as well. That uh, many cynics would say that that plays into things uh, a little bit. Uh, also, if you're going to say how much guaranteed would he get on, on this year's free agent market, I mean, two years at the mid level exception, maybe. You know, I mean, that's re- like twenty million guaranteed. Basically, I think he'd be looking at something like that. I agree. G- like, yeah. and especially especially considering how young most of the teams that have cap space are, like they they wouldn't be particularly inspired at the, at this. And then a lot of the contending teams don't have a ton of flexibility either. Yeah, James Harden, it's unclear whether he is still with Landmark right now, uh, according to Ben's research. Apparently on business matters, he is now represented by his mother, uh, that per Houston Business Journal as of 2018, he hasn't had to negotiate a new contract, but clearly a pretty good job has been done. You know, he was with Rob Palinka before Palinka left in 2017 to take the Lakers job. There was a renegotiation and extension and and, you know i don't know how much of this you want to say rosenthal gets credit for what palinka did they'll come up with andre guadala as well but recall that harden getting out of okc was great for his wallet he didn't sign the extension in okc and then got the full max in houston yeah there was a non-guarantee on the end of that but it it, that's true but it was you know but there was a trigger yeah yeah there was some like games played thing where it triggered right yeah uh and then renegotiated and and extended with some of Houston's extra cap space in the summer of 2016. That worked out great. Then he, and I don't know how much his agent had to do this, but remember that Russell Westbrook and James Harden were actually grandfathered in for designated veteran extensions in the 2017 CBA. I would assume that representation had something to do with that. So, and most of that was agreed to in late 2016. So maybe Polinko was a, a part of that too. And so that ended up being a four-year, $228 million. But that can't be right. That's got to be five years. Anyway, it, it was a very good contract. We might have the, the number in there wrong with the $228 million, But uh so, I, I mean, I, I think the, it's hard to say that anything has been done poorly with Harden. I mean, he, he's in a situation where he had a lot of leverage, but... Uh, would have to say at least a a B plus for both of those situations. Yeah, and I think that's about the best grade you can give for an unambiguous max player getting a max contract, but I think the context is is fair to to give it there. And now we move to a player who had a lot more ambiguity, Buddy Heald. Heald was drafted, of course, sixth overall by the New Orleans Pelicans in 2016. Great job covering up his true age. Like, you actually deserve a lot of credit for that, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, does, I mean, it, they, does he go mon- six that people knew that he, he was already was old? If he goes six that people knew that he was 23 already? The modern Danny Almonte. Yeah, I mean, that that is a, a fair point. Then, of course, Heald was included in the, was an important part of the DeMarcus Cousins trade, went to Sacramento, and then in Sacramento signed a, in t- last summer in 2019, signed a four-year, $94 million extension off his rookie scale contract that will be declining in salary, but it's still four years and $94 million for Buddy Heald. So that's a pretty damn good job. Absolutely. And it, there's some differing reporting on there. I think it was between 86 and 94 that, that's based on some of the incentives. That's a good way to negotiate and get to an agreement with the team. Also a good way to win the press conference battle and hopefully to get your client to agree to something, which I think was good. And great job signing the extension now. Healed maybe could have had some suitors this summer as a restricted free agent, but also you know, it's going to be 27 already. So, uh, maybe not as much of a fit for these young rebuilding teams that have cap space and hey good job taking the extension now you very easily could have been like hey i'm a rising star i was one of the best three-point shooters in the nba i averaged over 20 points a game last year you know that i deserve the max and to say no we're going to take this now realizing that it could be a little bit more fragile and it turns out it was he wasn't even starting by the end of the year and you i mean hard to imagine that he gets this type of contract this summer as well so good work there well and what's more think about think about how much more strain there would have been on his relationship with the kings if he were a pending restricted free agent coming off the bench after the uh the 18 19 season he had and uh, you know as a point of reference not that it is the end-all be-all of anything but healed finished the area the the portion of the season that is done now 270th in pipm and you know so is I that think about that it's not great no it's two spots below carmelo anthony who while a positive story we talked about his defense on the no defense team um a, a and positive granted, you know, story but a negative impact actually no that's yes. not fair he had a positive impact relative to who he was replacing but yeah that is that is true <laughs> but i mean that's also like a very spectacular statement about who he was replacing on that on that trailblazer team anyway this is the buddy healed section i thought they did a really good job for him and getting players to be risk averse i don't know healed if healed was personally uh, or or was not but to get them to handle that especially when he to me did not have the tools of somebody like jalen brown or brandon ingram to really have that year and also a shooting guard only player just doesn't have the same kind of value as a large wing to get him to take the money then was i think a great move and to negotiate money that was acceptable in the summer was great andre guadala oh you didn't give that a grade i don't think oh, oh uh b plus sorry okay I, I put it in my sheet and then i forgot to say it but thanks for money so iguadala getting to the warriors with all those crazy sign and trades the warriors giving up two first round picks a lot of hard work there on the initial four-year 48 million dollar deal in the summer of 2013 that's not part of this it's too old but worth discussing anyway and then three years 48 million fully guaranteed warriors and uh, were trying to offer more along the lines of a two-year deal with the third year non-guaranteed he managed to get them up to it with a number of machinations meeting with houston in theory and i thought this was this was this the was, was this the sacramento leverages or had that already been born uh well the sacramento leverages were definitely in the summer of 2013 they offered him more in theory than the warriors did yeah i guess that's yeah. uh there was talk that he might meet with the kings i, I remember it being more about getting a, a mid-level exception offer from the rock 
Rockets that yeah. in that summer of 2017. And remember also that Kevin Durant actually took less so that Livingston and Iguodala could return and the and the bill wouldn't be as bad for the Warriors. Warriors had full bird rights on him, but they clearly didn't want to pay him beyond the summer of 2019. And then they ended up trading him to Memphis. Uh but to get the $48 million guaranteed over $15 million a year when the only other offers he could have had were $8 million a year, that was impressive uh, to leverage his way out of that. Uh, and then the trade to Memphis, that couldn't have worked out any better either. I mean, that was fantastic. Did, got to stay at home in the Bay Area the whole season, not put any more miles on his legs. And then to get this trade to Miami, where he signs a, an extension for another $15 million next year and a team option the year after that. I mean, that's, that's all outstanding work. How much of that is Andre? How much of that is actually his agent? Not really clear, but in terms of just the the pure result, you you got to do be very happy with that. I think you got to go with a, a solid B plus, and then I would even go as high as an A minus on that second this most recent deal with Miami. And a, a way to think about we did this with Eric Gordon is well, what would he have gotten as a free agent? And Iguodala would have relied heavily on bird rights. We don't know where he would have ended up. You know, maybe he still ends up in Miami without this extension. But it would have been hard to replicate even with the team option to get that to get fifteen million in guaranteed money. I think even that would have been challenging for Iguodala. Maybe maybe it could have gone you know over two years from yeah. from a team not that had playing. Him I think increased his market value. Oh, I completely agree. And so if getting that 15 million locked in for one year on a competitive team is excellent. I mean, that's, that's really, really good work. Last one here is Shabazz Napier. And he signed that rookie scale deal in 2014. Was drafted by the Heat, potentially to assuage LeBron James. Never did anything in Miami, never did anything in Orlando. Blossomed with the top 55 protected pick deal in Portland as a backup point guard. And I was surprised that he couldn't get any kind of an offer from Portland and who did not even make him a, a qualifying offer. And then to get a two-year deal at the minimum as a with a second-year non-guaranteed that to me was below the player's worth i don't know if they just haven't done a good enough job of selling him clearly i mean the fact that you know the nets moved on from him they had to include him in the deal to golden state the warriors didn't value him at all it seemed like and then he got moved again by the wolves to washington it seemed like a lot of teams don't value him at all so maybe it's not fair to give a low grade for only getting the minute i thought he had, was a quality backup point guard i think he was worth more but he, he was not able to get that for him i mean clearly the league disagrees with me but i i think that they should have could have done better done a better job uh, of selling him and I mean, yeah, Portland, all these teams really seem like they gave up on. Also, signing in Brooklyn, I mean, I don't know what other offers they had, but signing there when Brooklyn already had Spencer Dinwiddie and D'Angelo Russell didn't seem like the smartest. He ended up playing when Dinwiddie missed time and... and did something but i mean again I, I don't know what the landscape was like but it, it's hard to say that they did a good job for him i've seen napier as a you know not the greatest backup point guard but a more solid one than the league has for years now i mean i remember lampooning portland for for what they did and and olshay bet on his ability to find new bench players i think that worked out better in 1819 than it did in 1920 but 
Napier, and then he's he's done a solid job on the Wizards as well. After he he ended up there after all the machinations around the uh, trade deadline and everything like that. And so I, I yeah I, I would agree with you that whenever you know it, it definitely a part of it is that the league thinks less of Napier than we do, and that's worth acknowledging. But at the same point, I mean you can compare him to his current teammate Ish Smith, who got two years and I think it was like twelve million dollars. And while I understand Napier not getting Ish Smith money, being so far removed from that is striking. Yeah, last one here is Tyus Jones, uh, and this goes back to the the Plinka days. He was drafted 24th overall in 2015, then left to join Kevin Bradbury at BDA. We talked about that uh, on our last agent review, but that was just a solid C for me getting him drafted 24th in 2015. So I, I think we can uh, wrap this up here. We went a little bit longer on the last dance than I thought we would. So why don't we save Jim Tanner for another time? And anything that you want to talk about uh, before we go here? If people haven't listened to the podcast I did with Kevin Pelton for Real Jam Radio, it was about his dynasty rankings and the last dance. So you can you get a little bit more context for it now. And then I have a bunch of pieces in the works for uh, The Athletic, including a um, I'm working on one on the Rockets. So you can look forward to that. I, I talked about it in the Eric Gordon comes up, of course, uh, in that in that as well. So that should be out. I would say it'll probably be out Wednesday, but you can keep an eye out for it. And of course, on Twitter. COVID Daily News, we actually got a nice endorsement from Nate Silver on the pod over the weekend. So we really would appreciate you telling your friends about that. That has its own feed. Just search COVID Daily News or Nate Duncan in your podcast player. You'll find it. I know you feel like you probably don't want to listen to it because you're sick of COVID stuff, but that's actually who it's for is the people who are sick of stuff. You listen to this, you get the real news that's important or about a half hour period, and then you don't have to scroll your timeline. You don't have to worry that you're missing stuff. You don't have to watch cable news god forbid and you can go about your day and, and hopefully get a little bit more well-informed coverage today I actually had in addition to doing the usual news roundup dr carl bergstrom from university of washington on to talk about some of the bottlenecks that we've had in testing some of the misinformation that's out there how he thinks things are going to evolve over the next six months or so so that was a, a very very enlightening conversation from a real live expert not just me telling you what the experts are saying you could actually hear live from the expert himself so thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you all tomorrow night till then